Welcome to Twill, the Week in Health Law, the presidential candidate's health podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on September 15th, 2016. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined as ever by Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland's Francis King Carey School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. And a quick reminder, it only takes a moment for you to go to iTunes and rate the show and make Frank and I feel much better about our lives. So this week on Twill, we greet Dr. Melinda Bunton, the chair of the Department of Health Policy at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. Dr. Bunton previously served as Deputy Assistant Director for Health at the Congressional Budget Office and the Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT, where she established and directed the Economic Analysis, Evaluation and Modeling Group. All of that while she was on leave from RAND's Health Economics Financing and Organization Program. Big treat to have you with us, Melinda. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm delighted to be here. So, as is our custom, we have a few things that are lying around our desk collecting dust. So, Frank, I'm going to start the lightning round. Um, My first contribution, uh, uh, I I thank uh, my colleague Diana Winters for reminding about the latest Incidental Economist New York Times piece by Aaron Carroll, also of this parish. Uh, He takes on the current patient satisfaction metrics, uh, uh, primarily derived from the clinical measures in the HCA, HPS surveys, and he compares them, with a little help from a health affairs study, to Yelp reviews. Um, The interesting thing is while there is general concordance between the survey data and the Yelp reviews as to topics, the online reviewers, the Yelp reviewers, um, cover 12 additional uh, criteria. These include such things such as the cost of the visit, how well the scheduling was done, the sense of the compassion of the uh, staff, uh, and so on. So obviously, we're opening up a differential here, reminiscent of Donabadian's famous distinction between interpersonal and technical care. Carol goes on, um, adding in data suggesting that patients gravitate, indeed, to hospitals that perform well on both outcomes and those interpersonal process measures. Um, And he asked the question whether this is actually an area where the market is working Um, and that, you know, when patients do have rich information, such as from Yelp and choice, so they have to be in a thick network, then maybe they do indeed, even today, reward higher performers with their business. Very interesting questions, Nick. And I think that's going to be on the agenda for the advocates of more consumer-directed healthcare over time in terms of how you can integrate some of these newer forms of ratings and reviews uh, into existing ranking and rating systems. And I think it's really important to get that level of granularity as well. Now, in terms of my uh, contribution to the lightning round, my first one is going to be on the ongoing debate over the EpiPen. Uh, and I'm going to cite, though, a article from a blog that, you know, I had not heard before it was part of a controversy, uh, with Vox over the reasons for the high price of the EpiPen, uh, one called Slate Star Codex. And the bottom line of this blog post is, you know, to give some background, a lot of people have been wondering why exactly is the EpiPen able to have such pricing power? And there is controversy over the degree of regulation of such things and to what extent does regulation cause the problem or is it ultimately going to be the key to a solution in terms of having, say, price regulation? 
Well, the contribution uh, here this week is essentially to point out that in Europe, there are at least eight different types of alternatives to the EpiPen. There's eight competing versions. And in the U.S., there's only one called Adrenoclick. But the problem with Adrenoclick is that essentially doctors are not allowed to, uh, or when doctors give a prescription for the EpiPen, the pharmacist is not allowed to substitute in this more uh, generic version. And this just led to a number of questions for me about the comparative regulatory regime. One being, you know, we all know historically that um, you compare the European uh, allowing of thalidomide versus the uh, hero at the FDA. Um, I, I forget her name, but I know that she is a celebrated person at the FDA that stopped, you know, that investigated thalidomide and stopped it uh, from going into the U.S. before it could cause huge problems. You know, that's a historical story of the, say, relative safety of American products vis-a-vis uh, ones in Europe. But on the other hand, it's hard to imagine that there's really all that much more risk in Europe of allowing these other competing versions. But the other question that one has is, you know, are there problems with like the American manufacturing versus, you know, what they're getting in Europe? And, you know, very difficult questions to note here. Um, But I do think that this is one of those areas where skepticism about the regulatory regime and availability of alternatives, it's very important to have that aired and to really get a sense of why we don't have some of the choices that are available overseas. Absolutely. And of course, uh, you were referring to uh, the great, but now unfortunately late, uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Francis uh, Kelsey, um, who uh, was at the FDA then. And um, dear listener, if you've never, ever clicked on a link in our show notes, um, please click on the one that uh, Frank just alluded to, um, if only to read the paragraph towards the end of the article that demonstrates how IKEA and the FDA are and are not the same agency. It is a <laughs> yes. a brilliant piece of writing, and I am going to have it on a slide uh, when I next do uh, drug and device work. <laughs> yes. So um, I thanked uh, my colleague Diana for uh, my first contribution. Uh, my second contribution, I thank my uh, health information technology students uh, who uh, every week have to post uh uh, uh, some links and a uh, consideration of the uh, the link in uh, the appropriate uh, uh, discussion forum. And we were doing uh, quality and safety HIT this week. And uh, uh, Mary it was who uh, um, uh, posted uh, the piece I'm now going to talk about. Um, uh, this podcast has raked over the Meaningful Use program a few times. And uh, you and I, Frank, have often discussed uh, both uh, uh, together and also uh, in, in writing uh, whether market failure was indeed the correct diagnosis of uh, the uh, EHR problem or whether the cause was actually uh, underperforming EHRs. Um, Well, here's another way of pushing the technology into providers' hands uh, uh, other than uh, subsidies uh, and maybe shows for once some aligned incentives. According to a joint press release, Mag Mutual, which is a very large med mal insurer, has partnered with Walter Kluwer to provide, and this is the the, uh, brand name for this, up to date, um, uh, and to provide this free of charge to its um, medical clients. Now, up to date is an evidence-based clinical decision support tool. 
Um, it's a database approach rather than an active clinical decision system that's built into EHRs and, and so on. But I thought it was a very interesting development that um, a med-mal insurer uh, would push this sort of evidence-based uh, clinical decision support tool uh, to its insureds. I completely agreed, Nick. And it's something to see. This is something that I know from a few health law and policy books I've taught from. There's a prediction that the malpractice insurers will take an increasing role in assuring certain levels of quality. And sometimes the evidence for that is still on the ground. But you're giving a really great example there, I think, of potential directions for the future. And, you know, maybe in the long term, uh, more financialized direction of uh, standards of care in general. Um, so for our final item, or at least for my final item for the uh, lightning round today, it is a recent report on the future of the VA. And, you know, for a few years ago, there was a book by uh, Phil Longman called uh, VA uh, Best Care Anywhere. And the argument of that book was essentially that there were this the government agency that really comes closest to or actually is single payer healthcare in the U.S., was doing a fantastic job in terms of keeping down cost and improving quality. Now, you know, fast forward about seven years, and there have been so many scandals and other issues in the interim, um, huge problems in terms of just the basic bureaucratic uh, process of getting people onboarded into the VA system. And overall, this has created some openings for advocates of privatization to push for uh further efforts to create a network of private sector care providers uh, for veterans. And I'll be linking to the full report. It's 300 pages. You know, I have not gone through it, you know, but I do think it's really important for part of the health policy discussion or more of the health policy discussion to address things like TRICARE, the VA, et cetera, um, as parts of our very heterogeneous, variegated healthcare system in the U.S. and to consider the proper balance of public and private in them. Uh, and I think that this is going to be an issue of really intense interest over time, uh, the degree to which this the VA does, the system is essentially uh, pushed in the direction of privatization as opposed to uh, kept in its present form. Yes, it would be odd to see a model of vertically integrated care privatized when perhaps it could be a, a shining light uh, for at least one type of future. Yes. So my final contribution, although it's also uh, something of an introduction to the beginning of our conversation with Dr. Bunton, is a letter from HHS that uh, Ohio received over the last uh, uh, week or so. Uh, and this letter turned down Ohio's uh, request for a section 111 five demonstration project. Um, the Ohio proposal included charging premiums to hundreds of thousands of individuals and likely would indefinitely, uh, well, definitely would indefinitely exclude any individuals who found themselves in payment arrears. I looked at some of the public comments against the proposal from United Way, various Catholic charities, etc., and they were not pretty comments. Uh, the com the uh, criticisms were, were, were very, very strong. So perhaps the decision was no great s surprise. And I guess uh, uh, implicit in this is the question whether this is a, a serious warning shot over the bowels of the governors of Kentucky and other states looking to adopt what I would uh, classify as, quote, a, a worse than Indiana model of uh, Medicaid expansion. 
Um, and on on that note, let's uh, bring uh, Linda into the conversation. It's so great to have you with us. Um, I noted um, that uh, Tennessee is uh, looking at Medicaid expansion, that there have been a couple of sort of false starts, and there is now a, a three-star healthy task force, I understand, that's looking at this. Um, and various uh, Medicaid expansion and triple one five demonstration projects are are out there being talked about in 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 so many states. Um, how serious they get, I guess, may well wait until after November. But the question I, I sort of really had to to start our discussion was. If you if you pull away from the sort of the political dogma that um, seems to drive a lot of the Medicaid expansion details, you know um, these plans seem to reflect political dogmas such as self reliance versus entitlements and so on. If you try and push those to the side and you actually look at what levers are being put into these plans or can be incorporated in these plans to sort of reduce costs or rein in unnecessary consumption. Are there some that economists and policymakers seem to think actually have some legs that that deserve being treated on their merits as opposed to being seen as part of a political discussion? Well, that's a very interesting question. And there are clearly um, principles that uh, resonate with members of different political parties uh, as they consider how best to expand in their state. And so in Tennessee, the discussions around the Three Star Healthy Task Force have really been around identifying what are problems that are specific to Tennessee um, and important to Tennesseans and what are unique and innovative ways that we can solve them. Because we have a long history here in Tennessee of having an 1115 waiver for our Medicaid program um, and having it be a very innovative program overall. And so when the legislators in Tennessee are looking at other states, and I think they have done that very carefully and and learned from those other states' experiences, uh, they have seen that uh, some states um, do seem to be experimenting with greater, as you termed it, responsibility being placed on enrollees um, in the form of premiums and cost sharings. Um, provisions. And they've seen that uh, many of those are still in the early stages. So we don't know a lot about the effects of those provisions on low-income populations. Now, if we take a step back, we can say that we've known since the 70s in the Rand Health Insurance Experiment uh, that people's demand for health care varies in response to the prices they face. Uh, That's a pretty uh, classic um, dogma in um, my even more than the law profession of economics. But uh, how exactly that affects low-income populations, um, we don't know. Um, Rand had some suggestive evidence about that, um, that people's tendencies to cut down on care indiscriminately, meaning both necessary and unnecessary care, seem to be particularly pronounced for those with low incomes. And so we have reason for caution. Um, But we're in a new healthcare era now, um, and our healthcare system looks very different than it did in the 70s. So I think 
when states look around at what other states are doing, like what Indiana is doing, like what Michigan is doing, like some of the things that Ohio wanted to do, cost-sharing provisions are one where we genuinely need to learn more um, and we need to build evidence um, as we proceed with those types of experiments. Uh, because they may indeed, um, if properly tailored, um, uh, have uh, beneficial effects, but if improperly tailored, have deleterious effects on the health of enrollees. Um, another area like that is incentives, um, so positive incentives uh, for healthy behaviors. These have been around for a long time in employee wellness programs, um, and the research is mixed on them. And again, those are for the research that exists is mostly um, for employed people people who are tied to a workplace. Um, and so how they might work for lower income populations, um, we can uh, try and learn from the existing evidence base, but I think we need to build that um, as we look uh, at these different states' expansion plans. Um, and we need to learn how to do it best. And that's what I hear uh, people in Tennessee asking questions about um, and having a genuine effort uh, to um, pick the best options, consider alternatives, um, and do real research and evaluation to determine what the best way to go forward. Fascinating. Is there is there anything that you know that we've learned so far from from Medicaid expansion that um, you know is definitely off the table, or is that is our are our data really um, so imperfect at the moment that we can't even make a statement such as that? Well, there's off the table in a couple of different senses. Um, off the table in terms of what CMS will accept is one definition of off the table. And I think we've learned some things from the Ohio experience of this week about what that constitutes. Um, off the table in terms of uh, what uh, the research would dictate, um, I think, is really around the sort of scope and magnitude of these things. Um, we have some standards around what inherently is an unreasonable amount um, to charge a low-income person. Um, and I think one of the things that it's nice to remind people of when we're having these discussions is um, when you look at what may seem to some people to be low copayment amounts um, that are, are allowed under existing waivers, um, they may in fact represent a very high proportion of someone's income um, if they're in an eligible group. So I think that that's a way to calibrate these things and take our experience from employed populations and move them um, to a Medicaid population. Yes, that does make a lot of sense. And it reminds me actually of a, uh, he might have been a prior show guest or maybe just a co-author of a prior show guest, Chris Robertson, who's been doing fantastic work on terms of trying to calibrate co-pays and other contributions uh, by income level. Uh, because he, I, I think you're exactly right about that, Melinda, that this could uh, have widely varying impacts on its ability to deter unnecessary care. Um, in terms of uh, another topic that, you know, you, you have so many areas of expertise, but I wanted to um, go into something that's in, been in my bailiwick and some things I've been very interested in in terms of estimating future uh, healthcare costs. Um, I recently downloaded your uh, paper uh, for the CBO or part of the working paper series of the Congressional Budget Office on changes in Medicare spending per beneficiary by age. And I thought this was such an interesting account in terms of looking at this broad population of people from 65 to 105 and then uh, addressing the types of changes. And I think the headline uh, conclusion in terms of you know where costs seem to be growing most 
is very interesting in terms of among older beneficiaries. And I was wondering if you could uh, sort of give our audience a sense of that finding and then maybe some of the reasons for it. Absolutely. This is an area of continuing interest for me. In fact, I've got some ongoing work in this area. Um, so it's verging on obsession at this point. Uh, but the big question <laughs> that we were seeking to answer when I started that work at the Congressional Budget Office was really around what were the effects of the recession, and in particular, the slow growth in healthcare costs that we were experiencing as a country. Um, how would they affect the federal budget, and did they affect the Medicare population and working age or employer uh, employed populations in the same way? Because we had some evidence um, of the uh, economic recession, for example, um, being associated with employers uh, being more likely to offer high deductible plans, uh, with people cutting back on their demand for health care because they just had less uh, less income in their pockets or were fearful um, that they'd lose their job, things like that. But those things didn't really apply to the Medicare population. The Medicare population is largely retired. They live on fixed incomes um, that aren't affected, um, that weren't being affected by the recession the way younger people were. Uh, by and large, they were covered by supplemental policies, so their out-of-pocket costs um, were limited, and they certainly weren't um, in the same types of high-deductible plans that people were moving into who had employer-sponsored coverage. Uh, and so all these things together made us really ask, what do, do we expect the, uh, the recession to have the same effect on healthcare spending among the Medicare population? And uh, if so, what does that imply about CBO's projections of future healthcare growth? So we really dove into it, and you said you downloaded it. It might have taken you a while because we really <laughs> looked at this exhaustively. The document became quite large because we looked at this data so many different ways. And uh, what we concluded was really that the recession could explain a very small portion of the slowdown in growth in per-beneficiary Medicare expenditures, per-Medicare beneficiary spending growth. And that was really important for CBO in its thinking about projecting future healthcare costs. So uh, I've continued to look um, at that issue as healthcare spending growth, in particular spending growth in Medicare, has continued to be slow. It's kind of amazing when I look back at uh, doing that report, we were looking at a period, um, so basically uh, a short period of time leading up to the recession and then a period after the recession. And we were trying to explain the difference in healthcare spending growth between those two periods of time. So in my more recent work, I've been looking at that second period of, of time when we thought spending growth was really slow and comparing it to a more recent period of time when spending growth has been slower still. Uh, so that's how far we've come and trying to understand the contribution of different factors. So one of the things that people posit you know, could be responsible for slower Medicare spending growth is, of course, that we have the retirement of the baby boom. And so that will bring down the average age and presumably improve the average health of a Medicare beneficiary. So we find uh, we found that that had a pretty small effect um, in the earlier report. We're finding that still has a modest effect, um, but something that we, is measurable. Um, but a bigger contributor in more recent periods uh, we're seeing is changes um, that were legislated in terms of payment rate changes. Um, and we're also seeing that there's just this really pronounced and continued slow growth in utilization. Uh, so 
So that's an interesting phenomenon. And I think that's affecting both the Medicare population and the working age population uh, as uh, as time goes on. So uh, Kaiser Health uh, News this morning um, reported on a, a, a KFF uh, survey. Um, and the number that they, they had there was average premiums for employer-sponsored family coverage rose 3.4% for 2016, down from the annual increases that were uh, twice that before 2011 and, and, and even and, and worse before. Um, but the observation that seemed to be in the piece was that maybe the data are a little messy because it's unclear whether that's driving down the costs or whether it's cost shifting that's driving down costs. Um, and I wondered if you had any thoughts on that. Well, I haven't read that piece, so I might need to ask you to explain a little bit more. But one of the beauties of looking at Medicare is that it's fairly contained and you can observe prices and utilization and beneficiary characteristics and the population that's that's covered is is uh, is very defined. Uh, so I'm not sure what they might have meant by cost shifting. I'll certainly check it out. Uh, but there do seem to be different rates of growth between uh, privately insured Medicaid and Medicare in terms of prices paid. And that's been one reason why over, say, the past five years uh, that there's been divergence in their spending growth trends. Yeah, all they said was that uh, the, the premium increases, in their opinion, in obscured the out-of-pocket costs that are being loaded on employees oh, I see. in the that's form of higher of, deductibles of, and co-pays. Of cost shifting. Um, yeah. Yes, that's possible. Although when we look at the national health accounts, um, and that tries to capture all personal health care spending, uh, we are also seeing continued slow growth. So uh, that, that's an interesting question. We'll have to see when the national health accounts uh, come out this year, what that might look like. And then, of course, there is, uh, you know, these things are all related to each other. So as cost sharing goes up, as we were talking about before, when we were talking about cost sharing in Medicaid, um, people's demand for care would certainly be affected. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I wanted to return to your earlier points about the sort of nature and the causes of the slowdown. And I thought that, yeah, the, the, the point about, and I've seen this controversy in so many different blogs on, on public finance, so it's great to get some solid analysis of, say, the effect of the recession as opposed to the effect of legislated changes. I had two other uh, possibilities that I wanted to bring up just because I think they're, they're interesting in sort of the history of debates about proper scoring and prediction of health costs. One was, you know, there's a pretty old paper, this one, I guess, 2005 from Follett and Shiner, where they're looking at the long-term sustainability of U.S. healthcare spending. And it seems like the bottom line of their paper is the old Herbert Simon approach, you know, is something, if a trend can't keep going at its current pace, it won't, <laughs> or something along those lines. And that, you know, if you, if you have, we are never going to get to a point where 100% of the economy is healthcare. And so at some point, there's like natural breaking mechanisms uh, for the spending. The second is a controversy that was pretty uh, lively during the debates of the scoring of the Affordable Care Act, which was to what extent would delivery system innovation and claimed savings from, say, accountable care organizations, IPAB, all these other elements of the act, 
should they or should they not be scored as uh, savings into the future? And I was wondering if uh, you had views on on either of those as potential uh, contributors to the moderation in the projection of uh, health expenditures. Yeah, those are both interesting points. So yeah, in terms of what can't go on forever won't go on forever. Uh, I think that's certainly true. And a question though becomes, you know, what is the right amount to spend on healthcare? This is one of those things that I have fun talking with my students about uh, because I think there continues to be some evidence that despite the very large amount that we spend on healthcare, it may in some senses be worth it. Um, We might not have reached the point at which there's actually another type of good or service in the economy that we would want to substitute for healthcare. And I say that given our society's penchant for very exciting and high-tech care. Um, And the thought experiment that I do with my students, uh, and I learned it from David Cutler, I don't know if he learned it from someone else, is would you buy 1970s healthcare at 1970s prices, or would you prefer today's healthcare at today's prices? And I find that almost everyone... Up until, you know, there's probably an inflection point that may be around 2005 would buy today's healthcare, today's prices over healthcare from a previous era at a previous era's prices. And so the question is, when that um, when that inflection point comes, if we really would prefer to have 2010 healthcare at 2010 prices, um, then that's when we're reaching the point um, at which we probably are going to slow down our spending on, on healthcare as a society. And that will happen in a whole variety of ways. Um, so that's that's just one of the ways that I think about it, and and I find it to be a useful uh, thought experiment. And your other question is in a way related because what started happening and what got piled into the Affordable Care Act were all kinds of different ways that people thought that they could save money in healthcare, and that came about in large part because it was such a groundswell of appreciation for the fact that so many of our healthcare dollars are wasted, that our system is inefficient, and that there are ways that we can get better value out of the system through changing incentives and through better organizing care. And so that's what went into things like the piece of the ACA that established ACOs and other provisions. Um, And and those provisions um, were scored, all of them scored in some way. We can talk about uh, some of the specifics if you like. Um, But it was interesting that that period, 2010, was a period when there really became a political dialogue and a greater understanding of the waste in our healthcare system. Got it. So yeah, I would like to hear, to talk a little bit further about the uh, scoring, because I know that relatively recently there was, um, uh, Nicholas Bagley was blogging about how CBO had uh, slashed projections of the number of enrollees and exchange plans, and that was potentially going to alter some pretty important provisions about the inflation indexing for, say, the federal uh, contributions to helping people afford care, both in terms of the premium assistance tax credits and some of the cost-sharing subsidies. And I was just wondering in terms of, you know, the the looking back, um, perhaps a conservative scoring of ACOs made sense because, uh, at least from what I've read, the ACOs have not yet really achieved that much uh, cost savings. But I was wondering, yeah, if you if you had any sort of commentary on, say, over time, what has turned out to be the the wisdom of some leading scoring decisions with respect to the delivery system innovation in the ACA? Yes. Okay. So there's so much in that question. Um, I'll try and pull it apart. So 
interestingly, um, there are two pieces here. There's the enrollment projections, which is what Nicholas was talking about. And then there's the cost per enrollee or the cost of subsidizing that coverage, um, which has been lower than projected. Um, and that, the, although those costs are lower than projected, also some of the cost-saving mechanisms that were hypothesized to hold down costs seem to have been less effective than we had thought they might be. So this is actually kind of confounding. How could that be? And um, it, I think it points to how complex the healthcare system is. I was not at CBO at the time that they scored the ACA, but I can tell you that they used the best information available and all of the historical trends up to that point would have indicated a much faster rate of spending growth than we have actually experienced over the past six years. Uh, and so they were not alone in forecasting that those premiums would be higher and thus the premium subsidy costs would be higher. In fact, Commonwealth did a nice analysis uh, probably about nine months ago looking at if CBO had had the right parameters in terms of healthcare cost inflation, um, other sort of macroeconomic trends and things like that, how off would it would have, how much uh, would its estimates have varied. Uh, and they compared the CBO estimate to a bunch of other organization's estimates. Um, the bottom line was that when you account for those things, which were in a sense unknowable um, and not known by anyone else either, uh, it really reduced that discrepancy by quite a bit. So uh, no one, um, I don't think any market analyst uh, would have projected that healthcare spending growth would continue at this relatively low pace for so long. Um, and uh, so there's that. Um, and then there's the, the realized experience with ACOs. I think that looking only at the realized experience with the set, the early set of ACOs is a lower bound estimate on the effects of things like the concept of ACOs. And I'll explain what I mean by that. When providers looked at the ACA, and when I say I'm using providers to say healthcare institutions of all kinds, um, hospitals, insurers, um, integrated networks, but also really investors that drive innovation in all of these fields, they looked at the Affordable Care Act, and I think they saw a new era coming. And that, I think, was very important, although really practically impossible to measure directly, effect, it had a very important effect on healthcare spending growth. And so I think all, all around the healthcare system, there was a much greater focus on prices. I've already said, I think there's a greater focus on waste um, and on improving efficiency. And collectively, all of these things, more than any one model like ACOs, have had an effect on healthcare spending growth. Um, so in terms of how to score uh, things in particular, because you asked about that, I do think that um, CBO had a reasoned um, score of those different provisions, and it was based on experience with prior demonstrations in Medicare. And the experience with prior demonstrations in Medicare was that a significant portion of them, um, in fact, really most of them, failed to save money, which doesn't mean that they all failed to save money or that they all will fail to save money, but it was just a cautious interpretation based on the evidence to date. Um, and so that influenced the scoring, um, and I think reasonably so. But what that can't capture is these, uh, if you will, health economy-wide effects 
of a change in direction and an increased focus on value and cost containment. Well, picking up on both um, CBO scoring and and that last point about value, Politico uh, reported today that Macra had uh, had landed at CBO for scoring. I won't insult you with the sucker question, which is, will MIPS work? But um, maybe I could ask you, what's the sort of timeline we should be looking at to make the judgment whether something like MIPS works? And as we proceed through that window, down that timeline, are there any sort of indicators that would give us hints as we go along? So an interesting thing about MACRA and MIPS is I see them as further efforts to convince providers to kind of get on the value bandwagon. Remember, your responsibilities depend on which path, if you will, you choose. Uh, And so you can choose an alternative payment model path and you can uh, be eligible for payment increases over time, or you can choose alternate paths, which may be require you to do a lot of individual activities, um, or you can choose not to have your payments updated or to receive very low updates in your payments over time. So I see them as efforts to continue this uh, pressure on providers to really look at how they're organized, are they delivering value, consider uh, alternative payment systems. And so they need to be judged in part based on um, what expected costs would be uh, in the absence of MIPS. Um, But I think one of the things that's really challenging is to try and figure out whether they're actually creating a sort of larger inflection point, if you will, in how capital is invested in the healthcare system and providers are organizing themselves. No, that's a fascinating perspective. Thank you. And that was this week's The Week in Health Law. A very special thank you to Dr. Bunton for joining us. She is at M-E-L-I-N-D-A-B-B-U-N-T-I-N on Twitter. So go follow her and hear the wonderful things she says. It was great fun having you with us today, Melinda. Thank you so much for having me. We post our show notes at Tor.com. You can contact me on Twitter at Nick Nicholas Terry and Frank on Twitter. Where are you? At HealthPI on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but pneumonia-free healthy week. <laughs> <laughs>